Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. Brian Stead, the host and producer of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Jen McMenemy, ancient history fan girl. Samuel Hansen, host of the podcast Relatively Prime Stories. Peter Adamson, the History of Philosophy podcast. Jenny Redfin. Benjamin Jacobs. David Petrusha. Eric from Reconsider. I'm Eric Marcus. Jenny Williamson. Zachary Davis. Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. Intelligent Speech 2019 in New York City was a blast, and I am thrilled to announce that I will be back again for 2020. But due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it'll be online this year at intelligentspeechconference.com. Intelligent Speech is an online conference that brings together the best educational podcasts and their listeners, and it is taking place this year online only at intelligentspeechconference.com from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on June 27, 2020. There will be approximately 40 of the best educational podcasters available that day, presenting a wide range of topics, as well as roundtable debates from several of us. And listeners will be able to fully participate online, including being involved in Q&As with all the presenters and more. A one-day pass for the conference is currently priced at $10 for early bird tickets. So for more details, go to intelligentspeechconference.com and see you there on June 27th. We shall never surrender. This will be an event that you don't want to miss, so I hope to virtually see you there at Intelligent Speech 2020. It was the best of times. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. This is the, the show where we look at the things which we deem, at least we imagine, or we'd like to think have been important ingredients in the whole pie that is England. And it could be something from history, from culture, or just from whatever, really. I am Royfield Brown, and I'm joined by... Who are you, sir? I'm Luke Baxter, and hello. And today... We're going to talk about a topic which is very close to my heart. One or two of these uh, instances have been very close to my heart in the last uh, 50 odd years. We're going to talk about youth cultures. And I must admit, Luke, there is a big question at the start of this as to why is it that England has uh, developed so many of these peculiar instances of teenagers and young adults dressing the way that they have done and calling themselves something and dancing to a certain set of music as opposed to any other nation in the world 
I've yet to read a book or read an article where somebody's absolutely put their finger on it, but it is a peculiarly English uh, institution, basically. Oh, phenomena, phenomena, sorry. It'd be really interesting to, to find out. I really want to hear your, your take on it because it, it is something that I think we could argue the toss a little bit, but um, it is something that seems to be curiously sort of coming out of here. It, something I always discuss with my Spanish friends. The, the, the Spanish basically sort of say, well, you know, the English are really boring. They don't know how to have fiestas and that sort of thing. I was like, yeah, but how come we are the ones who are producing all the music, all the fashion that you guys are following and probably having more fun with them? That's exactly it. And especially when you think of how important American popular culture has been since the Second World War, the very fact that England has given birth really to how the teenager dresses after the Americans kind of set that template up is something which needs to be investigated. So what I have is somewhat of a majestic historical perspective on youth culture from an English perspective. It starts following World War II. There's a baby boom, Luke, which brought about the birth of a distinct youth culture in England. And it's something which frequently reinvents itself every two or three years or so. At least it did up until about the mid-90s. It slowed down now, it has to be said. Young people began to turn away from their parents' ethics and their style of dress, and they began to dance to a new type of music. The influence of US culture and post-war affluence created the British teenager in the 1950s. Prime Minister Harold Macmillan told the country you've never had it so good in 1957 when the first English subculture, the Teddy Boys, were in their pomp. This group of young men dressed in an Edwardian mode and introduced anarchy into British society (laughs) using early rock and roll as their battle call. The name Teddy Boy was coined by the Daily Express newspaper who had a headline that shortened Edwardian to Teddy. Teddy girls were known as Judies, which it must be something which I didn't know at all. <laughs> Never uh, heard that. And they would dress up in their own draped jackets, rolled up jeans, flat shoes, tailor jackets with velvet collars, with strobe boated hats, brooches, espadrilles, and with elegant clutch bags. They were wearing trousers. So even the Judies were wearing trousers. Some of the Judies were. Some right. of the Judies were. Rolled up jeans. It's very much... An Amer- it's a British take on an American contemporary way of dressing back then, it has to be yeah. said. And American um, music, presumably. Oh, totally, totally. We're going to come on to the music in, in a little bit. But the Teddy Boy uh, subculture started amongst teenagers in London in the early 1950s, with its signature look coming out of Savile Row. It rapidly spread across England. And as you said with the music there, Luke, the soundtrack was American rock and roll, though by the end of the decade... Uh, Teddy boys were dancing to English skiffle music. And now it's time for us to introduce the King of Skiffle himself, Lonnie Donegan! Sweet 16 goes to church just to see the boys laugh and screams and giggles at every little noise. She turns her face a little, then turns her head a while. In post-war Britain, rationing continued to have an effect on the fashion industry. This is in the early 1950s. And that whole kind of look comes about because men's tailors in central London devise a style of dressing based on the Edwardian clothing, hoping to sell it to young officers who were being demobbed from the services. And they consciously aped um, this kind of American zoot suit style, draped jackets reminiscent of the 1940s and kind of also kind of worn by Italian-Americans and African-Americans and stuff, and people like Cab Calloway. So you had these wide shoulders and then this kind of thin waist. Yeah. Um, but the look just didn't take, didn't take at all. And so um, these high-class tailors had a whole load of these suits and they had to sell them at kind of at cost to suburban tailors and to shops and that's really where the look comes from and really by 1952 the look starts to really kind of gain traction in England Um, and kind of the interesting thing is about it is that there had been some youth groups beforehand 
in England. So um, there were the scuttlers in mid 19th century Manchester, or the Peaky Blinders yeah. in Birmingham. So this wasn't wholly a new phenomena, but obviously by the time you have the 1950s, you have a mode of dress, but with music attached with it as well. Yeah. So a very definite subculture. Whereas, I mean, the Peaky Blinders were criminals. They were criminal gangs rather than who just happened to have a particular look rather than a youth culture as such, weren't they? I don't know whether all Peaky Blinders were criminals, but they were young men who dressed a certain way and had, and the whole kind of Peaky Blinder thing, as I understood it, being a Brummy, because it's very much a, a Brummy phenomena, was they had razor blades behind the peaks of their caps. Yeah. So they always wore caps, had razor blades behind them, and they could h handle themselves. <laughs> but um, there was a podcast about the real Peaky Blinders. Um, I think somebody's oh, okay. written, written a book about them. Um, and they were a they were a gang, um, uh, and you know they, they were they were a criminal gang, and they, and they certainly weren't as good looking as what's his name? Um, what's his name? I always forget his name. The main actor oh, yeah. of the Peaky Blinders. He was rather handsome, and I can't remember his name either. I, I step aside to you in, when it comes to this uh, infamous Birmingham uh, subculture, uh, sorry, gang, uh, the Peaky Blinders, who were it's like late 19th century to about the 1920s. They, they yeah. kind of did do, they were around for, for quite some time. Yeah, Killian, but, Mur Killian Murphy. Sorry, it's come to There you go, there you go. Um, but the Teddy Boys were the first english youth group to differentiate themselves as teenagers and they helped to create the youth market in england some teds formed gangs and gained notoriety uh, with their violent clashes with with other rival gangs of teds but they also were known for their unprovoked attacks on immigrants the most notable yeah. of these clashes were the 1958 notting hill race riots in which teddy boys were present in large numbers and were implicated in attacks on the West Indian community. Something new and ugly raises its head in Britain. In Notting Hill Gate, only a mile or two from London's West End, racial violence. An angry crowd of youths chases a Negro into a greengrocer's shop. While police reinforcements are called up to check the riot, one of many that have broken out here in a few days. The injured victim, a Jamaican, is taken to safety. But the police have not been able to reach all the trouble spots so promptly. Most disturbing feature of the riots is the suspicion that not all the troublemakers are locals. Some of the gangs who break windows or throw bottles or burning torches have arrived by car. Opinions differ about Britain's racial problems, but the mentality which tries to solve them with coshes and broken railings has no place in the British way of life. This violence is evil, and the law and public opinion must stamp it out. Their violent lifestyle was sensationalised in the pulp novel Teddy Boy by Ernest Ryman, which was first published in the UK in 1958. So within six years, you know, this phenomenon has become so embedded in popular culture that there's books about them, you know, there's he newspaper headlines about them. By the 1960s, the Teddy Boys were on the decline. Music was changing and so was England. Mods or modernism focused on fashion and music and had its roots in a small group of London-based men in the late 1950s. They were listening to jazz as opposed to rock and roll, black soul music, ska and R&B, alongside British blues-rooted bands, people like the Yardbirds, the Small Faces and the Who. Like the Teds before, they opted for tailor-made suits, but this time they were shorter and fitted with three buttons. Kind of more than kind of the Italian style. The foe of the mods were the leather-jacketed rockers. <laughs> Media coverage of mods and rockers fighting in 1964 sparked a moral panic about English youth. Uh, rockers were the 60s version of the Teddy Boys. Whilst the mods had their scooters, the rockers rode real motorbikes, Triumphs and BSAs. And they became so associated with them 
that they politicized uh, motorcycling within England. Rocker culture was centered, as we said, kind of on motorbikes and their appearance reflected that. Rockers generally wore protective clothing such as black leather jackets and motorcycle boots. Their style was heavily influenced by Marlon Brando in The Wild yeah. One. And this is going to be maybe the last time in more than 20 years that English youth fashion would be influenced by American dress codes. Mm -hmm. To go with the American dress code, yeah, basically, after that, we're doing our own thing. And it's not that America is following us. It's just that there is a very British way of dressing. Yeah, yeah. But, but this is really the last time. So the Teds, they took their, their influence very much from American style. The mods didn't, but the rockers kind of still do. So go with the American dress code. The soundtrack of the rockers was also very American. It was 1950s rock and roll with artists like Eddie Cochran, Elvis, and uh, Bo Diddley being uh, very prominent on their jukebox. Now, the BBC news stories from May 1964 stated that mods and rockers were jailed after riots in seaside resort towns in southern England, places such as Margate, Brighton and Bournemouth and Clacton. This was to become an annual event for the next 10 years in which the UK media would always report on bank holiday fights from various seaside resorts. And I must admit, that's, that's something I always remember from my childhood. Can you remember those? It was no, no, like, no. You know, Oh, oh God, I always remember that, those news reports, uh, you know, like on the BBC News. Clacton and scores of other places in Britain congratulated themselves that this was the outstanding bank holiday weekend for several years. Hot without being sweltering, so that millions were able to feel they hadn't a care in the world. There was just one thing casting a slight cloud over Clacton, the possibility that the mods and rockers might once again descend on the town. Any who did sensed that the police would be more than ready for them. Clacton had no intention of being a battleground again. It really has come to something when people can't take a short holiday without the threat of long-haired youngsters with knives indulging in an orgy of hooliganism. Quadrophenia moves my into the, the whole world of the, the fights of between the Rogs and the Rockers. Have you seen the film Quadrophenia, the, the Who film? I, I haven't seen it in forever, oh, but yes, awesome. I have seen it. Um, it's absolutely amazing. One of my... What exactly were you, Luke? Were you part of any subculture, sir? I was a slightly try-hard wannabe goth, early 80s. That comes as no surprise to me, <laughs> considering you're a man steeped in books, aren't you? <laughs> I like a book, yeah. <laughs> All right, so, you know, that is the staple of the goth, a book. Back to the 1960s, because the goths are the 80s. So we've got 20 years to go before we get to goths. Uh, 1965 uh, is a time often referred to as swing in London. Youth. The swinging youth who have given staid and sober old London its recent swinging metaphor. And it's the voice of youth which is decreeing change in this city of increasing contrasts. Exuberant, extrovert, exhibitionist, not even the gay young things of the 20s could make such a shattering impression on our capital as this generation. Swinging London, changing London, down with the old, up with the new. Demolish the Victorian, the Edwardian, the Georgian. Replace it with skyscraper blocks, boutiques, discotheques. This is youth's message to the world they live in. The mushrooming message of modernity. And London is being forced to conform. And holy smoke, not even a towering chimney can escape the axe. During this time, mod fashion spread to other countries and became popular in the United States and elsewhere, with mob style now not a subculture, but a statement of English youth style. So it's that classic look. So the, the boys had uh, three-button jackets, uh, straight trousers, that kind of mop top crop um, hair, a shirt and a tie. But also you could have maybe have like a, a roll neck or a polar neck. And that classic way that we think of how women dress there in short miniskirts yeah. would be the way that, that women dress. They, they were, those were modettes. 
And when we think of the 1960s and fashion, it almost gets like uh, pastiche uh, with um, Austin Powers. That is a quintessentially kind of mod look. And I must admit, I'm a bit of a an old gone wrong mod. That that is my right. my look, and I have numerous suits, three button suits, and I just think it's the uh, an ultimate way of just just looking smart. But the Parker jacket as well. That, yeah, you have to have a Parker jacket over the top of it all. I've got a Parker jacket too. <laughs> I, 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 I've, I I have all the elements. Sir. I have all the elements. Um, as mods became synonymous with swinging London. Some working class street mods branched off, forming other groups that were eventually to become known as skinheads. Many of the hard mods who left behind the more dandy mods lived in some of the same economically depressed areas as the new West Indian immigrants. These mods favoured a different kind of attire that emulated the rude boy look of the Jamaican toughs. So Trilby hats, two short trousers and braces, Fred Perry or Ben Sherman's shirts, with Levi jeans and Dr. Martin boots. They listen to Jamaican Scar. I want all you skinheads to get up on your feet. Put your braces together and your boots on your feet and give me some of that old moon stamping. Get ready. We've got three million miles to reach on the moon. These hard mods, or skinners as we should now really call them, were drawn to black culture in part as a reaction to the more middle-class hippie movement and drug-orientated music that was kind of getting popular by the end of the, the late 60s. But skinheads at this point are not the sort of racist skinheads that I might think of, the British National Party and that lot. No, no. And as I think it was episode two when we did Scar as one of yeah. the things that actually made him. It's one of the massive ironies that yeah. the skinhead look is taken from black uh, working class immigrants and the early skinheads all, you know, very much embrace ska music and, and black culture. And it's by the end of the 70s that somehow the whole thing gets turned on its head. And um, so you have uh, skinhead fascists, but it, it started off completely the opposite. No, I, I, as you know, I've just shaved my head and I was worried that it makes me look like a, a fascist because to, to me, a skinhead is the British National Party and a complete racist. I've still yet to really read um, a kind of treaties which explains how this really happens, but it's something to do with working white working class youth being alienated mm. and feeling disenfranchised and then taking comfort from that look. But as I said, it starts off completely the, the opposite. It's embracing of people from a different culture. Yeah. So the mods and ex-mods were also part of the early northern soul scene, a culture based on obscure 1960s and 70s American soul records. Some mods evolved or kind of merged into the suburban subculture of the Soul Boy in the 1970s. London, who's for tennis in the 70s? The Teddy Tinling on-court collection at the start of the decade indicates that tennis will be a sport very much worth watching in the years ahead. Not so much perhaps entirely for the game's sake. Tinling as ever stresses femininity. The materials cover a wide range of man-made fibres, which, as they say, are made by man with woman very much in mind. Lace-up tunics can provide the hot tennis player with any degree of ventilation. There's also a fair amount of air circulation available in this outfit. So, it's the 1970s. They've started with kind of the hippie chic, which came from California, influencing English fashion, though not our subcultures, interestingly enough. David Bowie, as Ziggy Stardust, helped to create glam as a look, but it never really took off on the English streets. It's something that, you know, pop stars dress like, you know, Mark Bolan and whatever, but people on the streets didn't really go in for that look. As the music of the mid-70s became more polished, 
and the economy of England took a nosedive. By 1975-76, some bands on both sides of the Atlantic sought out a more angry and authentic sound centered on loud, aggressive music. And this yeah. music was called punk. Yeah. Punk consisted of shouting, shouted slogans, choruses along with distorted guitars and a simple three chord structure derived from 1960s garage rock and 1970s pub rock. You were a bit of a fan, a devotee of the punks, were you? I quite like a bit of punk music. Um, yes, because I think that is quite interesting, isn't it? That I think, you know, you could definitely make the argument that punk music started in the States with the Ramones and Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and people mm. like that. But the look is English. You know, the look, that punk, you know, is, is it's London. totally English. Yeah. yeah. It, it's it's not even just London, it's West London, and it's uh, manufactured in, in Chelsea, isn't it? So the, the look of punk was designed uh, and, and is associated with Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren, their boutique on the King's Road, uh, which was called Sex. Punk fashion used ordinary objects such as ripped clothing, which is held together by safety pins. Uh, ordinary, just ordinary everyday clothing could be customised with markers or paint and razor blades could be used as jewellery. The look is dystopian, aggressive and spoke kind of of sex really, <laughs> uh, with its use of leather and PVC clothing. The Mohawk left the American plane and became a staple along with brightly coloured hair. This was the punk's defining look. It has to be said that as a kid, I I just thought punks were crazy. I just, I just, as, as an eight-year-old wandering around Birmingham City Centre, there always be a group of punks. They were just wrongs, you know, and they, they were just crazy people. And, and I think of all of the subcultures which we've talked about so far, they're the most apart from mainstream society. You know, punks were kind of, real punks were kind of ridiculed and, and, and people just frightened of them at, at the time. And stuff. Yeah, because yeah. I think it's it's also the commitment. I mean, something like a mohawk hairstyle is is quite a commitment mm. because you know you can't just sort of hide it if you go to work the next day. You know, you've got massive load of purple hair on the top of your head. Um, it's fairly evident, um, and I, yeah, I think that's why. It, in, in, and I've always quite liked that. Just I've never taken part in it, but that commitment to to a fashion where you know you've you've gone for a massive tattoo or something like that that you can't get rid of and that is you and you've really stamped your your personality on your look you know what Luke that is a stunning point you just made there that whether you were a teddy boy or a rocker you could still take off that garb and go to work but but punks yeah. always seem to be permanently unemployed and there's a good reason for that and you just yeah. outlined it you know you're going to turn up to work with a mohawk in the mid 1970s it's not going to go down well yeah no like in in quadrophenia sting is the sort of hardcore leader of the of the um mods um and you know mm -hmm. he's all got his his suit and his parker and his moped and everything um but by day he he's a bellboy in a hotel and so he just takes it all off puts on his bellboy uniform and loses his identity but a punk wouldn't be able to do that mm. Most punk songs were very short, with basic arrangements using few chords. As we said kind of before, just, you know, three chords. But it shook up English urban youth culture and influenced non-punk music also. And it helped to start a mod and ska revival in the late 1970s. Too much, too young. Urban England had changed forever with the wave of the new Commonwealth immigrants since World War II. So with urban England changed because of immigration from the West Indies, music also changed too. With the energy of punk 
but with the music of Jamaican ska, this created a new youth culture, two-tone, which then spawned a new look. Trilby hats, sharp 60s suits, generally the colours just black and white, straight trousers with the girls dressed in black and white dresses. This scene was forged in Birmingham, Coventry and London. was upbeat so of course if there was an antidote that you needed or if you wanted your music to be a little bit more thoughtful and introspective in come the goths there you go there you go <laughs> goths were associated with repression and outsider culture they generally began round about the early 1980s Post-punk, the name was derived directly from the music. Post-punk groups like Susie and the Banshees, Joy Division and The Cure gave it a look and a sound. The gothic adjective was also used to describe the look of goths. Kids dressed in black and they had pallid white skin. Just as every town has its assortment of punks, by the 1980s the same was true of the goths, taking their visual cues from 19th century gothic literature and horror films. Goths were a little bit more middle class than punks. Oh. I'll hear you come back. I'm in. Go on then, Luke. Jump what? in, sir. Hey, I'm just trying to find uh, a website which people should visit called Goths in the Sun. Um, <laughs> or Goths in the Heat, because it's hilarious. It's just loads of pictures. Yeah, Goths in hot weather. <laughs> and it's just loads of pictures of Goths sitting on the beach in full sort of uh, <laughs> massive great black leather coats. Uh, it's quite amusing. Yes, I mean, so the um, apart from the goths in hot weather, um, as we probably know, I'm a bit middle class myself and went to boarding school. And it was quite uh, popular at boarding school where we, you know, we were shoved away and, you know, we were probably feeling a bit discontented. Goth music and goth look um, was definitely mm-hmm. quite attractive to us because it felt like, oh, my God, poor me, I've been sent away. Um, and, yeah, it was great for sort of wallowing and self-pity. <laughs> As, as I said before, uh, the goths were more middle class than, than the punks. And unlike the two-tone Scar fans, goths have never really ever gone away, unlike just about every other subculture. So there's something about the goths and their introspection, which is enduring, which has been enduring since the 1980s. You know, goths, uh, obviously the gothic um, heyday was the 1980s and stuff, but there still are goths today, aren't there? Yeah, Marion Manson and people like that. Uh, his look is, you know, he's he's 10, 15 years after the goths, um, but he's definitely a goth. We couldn't be more goth than him. <laughs> no, you, you, you couldn't. You, you're, you're spot on. Yeah. The, the, two, the two-tone revival brought black and white kids together, but musically it was a fusion of Jamaican music with English punk pop. Soul Boys were a similar racial melting pot of working class and lower middle class English youth culture at the late 1970s and 80s, but they were fans of American soul and funk music. They're looking completely to America for the musical cues. No, yeah, I was just going to say, because that's something I know nothing about. It was very interesting to hear about that, the Northern Soul, because, you know, I thought it was just Lisa Stansfield. You know what, we're going to come on to that, right? There's a big reason why soul boys and soul girls always get forgotten about, and the whole annals of English kind of subculture. The subculture began in the northwest of England around towns like Wigan as Northern Soul events uh, started playing new funk and jazz from artists such as Lonnie Liston Smith and Royers, two artists which I absolutely love. 
mm. expansions and everybody loves the sunshine by Roy, Roy Oz. oh my god and they started doing this instead of just continually playing the obscure 1960 soul records which was the staple of northern soul at the time kind of at the same time so we're talking about late 70s early 80s uh nightclubs in the southeast of england with djs such as chris hill robbie vincent froggy greg edwards and pete tong uh, were playing in clubs and also were on the the burgeoning pirate radio stations were in and around london at the time and the pirate radio network became that important that it led to the formation of kiss fm getting a legal radio license in the early 1980s now it'll take me about 20 minutes or so to, to warm up a little bit and steve's adjusting my microphone i only just managed to sit down anyway let's kick the music off this is the south soul orchestra drifting back in time a little thing called the chicago bus stop that's kind of how important that kind of soul boy movement was but soul weekenders like caster which were a, one of the main kind of haunts of the soul boys and soul girls they still exist today and uh, the soul weekenders would take place either on bank holiday mondays at places like butlins <laughs> and you just have thousands of guys just dancing like there was no tomorrow to great american soul music you better explain what butlins is oh a holiday <laughs> camp <laughs> That's a very, a very good point so um before there was cheap travel abroad to, to europe um the system of holiday camps were kind of came into its own i think around the 1920s 30s it's like an interwar things when they started but de definitely then picked up after the war period in the 50s 60s and 70s um, and you'd go down to the seaside and there'd be lots of small little huts and chalets, and there would, and you'd be within an enclosed area of which you had your meals, which you could go and have, you know, lunch and dinner, etc. And then there'd be holiday entertainment put on, and there's, and it, generally it's down by the seaside, and then also there's a swimming pool, etc. And it'd be a cost-effective holiday for a working class and lower middle class families to go along to Butlins. And what you find that by the late 1970s and 80s, that some of these holiday camps, once, twice a year, give themselves over to these soul weekenders where they'd get like a thousand young people and they descend from all bits of England to go there and just dance their hearts away for two or three nights. So that would be a classic kind of caster uh, soul weekender. Cool. Casuals emerged in the 1980s and they were heavily influenced by the Soul Boys look and love of designer labels. So um, Soul Boys wore trainers, parkers and brands such as Stone Island, Feeler, Elise, Lacoste, Sergio Tacchini and Fred Perry. But the casuals focus was more on football and football violence. Mm. By the 1990s, casuals kind of morph into lad culture and are more closely associated with Britpop than American soul music. The soul boy scene was huge and ran in tandem with the rise of Thatcher's new economy. It had large numbers of followers in the Southeast, but received far less media coverage than other youth cultures. It wasn't as angry as punk or its music as glaringly British as the new romantics who we're going to come on to next. Soul boys and soul girls died out with the boom of Acid House in 1988-89. So your point, Luke, was it was a really good one. So when I first started putting this together, and I just did this off memory, I just went, uh, Teddy Boys, Mods, Rockers, Punks, Two-Tone, and then I went Goths, New Romantics, and I forgot the Soul Boys. Hmm. And it is, they didn't get the media attention. They weren't fighting anybody. Hmm. They didn't have a glaring look. And also, it was very suburban. It was suburban in the southeast of England. It was, uh, I, I remember my, my first girlfriend at college, she was very much a soul girl. She would always be talking about going to Caster and, and, and whatever, and these big weekend weekender do's. But she was very much on the peripheries of London. This wasn't um, a central London or 
Birmingham, Coventry, you know, the big metropolitan places uh, uh, movement. It was the home counties. And as I said, they weren't fighting anybody. Yeah. So it almost went underneath the radar. Well, it did go underneath the radar in terms of the popular press. And they were in Butlins. Uh, yeah, and they were in Butlins. <laughs> yeah, but it, went, but it went on for about 15 years. And actually those Caster and those big soul weekends still actually happen today. But increasingly, it's people who are in their 50s and 60s still dance into that music of that time. The New Romantics gave the early 80s its look and sound. It was a pop culture movement that began in nightclubs around about 1979 in Birmingham and London. It started at clubs like Billy's and The Blitz, uh, and in fashion shops such as Birmingham's Carn and Bell. It was flamboyant and foppish. Electronic pop and English street fashion became the toast of world capitals and MTV. It defined a whole decade. The look defined the 80s. Steve Strange worked as a club doorman at the Blitz Club in London. And he was known for its uh, exclusive door policy and dress code. He would deny potential patrons admission because he felt they hadn't dressed creatively enough to earn entry. You had to be elaborate, theatrical, with a futuristic twist to get in. Uh, while bands associated with, with the New Romantic movement used synthesizers to create its sound, they weren't the first. Kraftwerk and artists like Jean-Michel Jarre, amongst others, got there first. But it was bands from the New Romantic scene that adopted synth pop and took it mainstream. These were bands such as Duran Duran, Depeche Mode, Spandau Ballet. We all know these bands. Japan. Oh, oh God, David Sylvian. Yeah, <laughs> I oh, love yes. Japan. Wasn't he tortured? Oh. Yes, I know. But that, it always felt like the most new romantic because it was all so sort of deep plonk. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. All the girls loved David Sylvan at yeah. school. Like he was like their ideal kind of like pop star. They went from Phil Oakey, and if you liked Phil Oakey, but then you wanted a little bit more angst yeah. and whatever, uh, you know, then you went for David Sylvan. You graduated onto him. Even more foppish. Yeah. So big did the music become that during 1983, 30% of the US record sales were from British acts. On the 18th of July in 1983, 18 singles out of the top 40 in America and six in the top 10 were by English artists. Hmm. Newsweek ran an issue with the caption, Britain rocks America again. This was the second British invasion. Top 100 American Billboard singles were acts of British origin. That is how big that scene uh, yeah. became. By 1988-89, New Romantics were definitely something of yesteryear. But those two years, uh, sometimes dubbed as the second summer of love, even though it was actually two summers, it saw the rise of acid house music and unlicensed rave parties in England. House music and the prevalence of the drug MDMA, also known as ecstasy, fueled an explosion in a new wave of youth culture. The raver was born. The 
music of this era fused four to the floor beats with the sound of club music from Detroit and Chicago. The Smiley logo is synonymous with this period of youth and club culture. House music had been popular in the North and in Midlands clubs for years, but the rise of Shoom run by DJ Danny Rampling, Future by Paul Oakenfold, and the Hacienda in Manchester broke this scene nationally. Parties were held in empty warehouses and in fields throughout the land, with information about these events travelling by word of mouth. Dancers could dance for hours due to the effects of MDMA. Racial and class barriers came crashing down. French Kiss by Lil Louis, Mystery of Love by Fingers Inc. were some of the first big hits, which were all American. But English producers such as LFO, Unique 3 and Adamski then rose to the fore. The house music scene in cities such as Birmingham, Leeds, Sheffield, Stoke and London drove the whole movement. Now, Luke, I'm going to stop there mm-hmm. in the early 90s. Just when I was enjoying it. Just when I was arriving. <laughs> well, uh, me too. And actually, um, <laughs> I was an early house DJ. I, oh. I DJed in clubs on the South Coast, in Leeds. Yeah, no, I, I used to go to some of those illegal raves in, the, in warehouses and stuff like that. It was quite fun. After the 1990s, yes, we do have UK Garage, we have Grime, we have Jungle. We do have musical movements, but there isn't a mode of dress associated with it in a way that there had been in the Mm. previous 40 years. Something definitely changes with the rise of the raver and the the raver's attire was as we said you know it was t-shirts with the smiley logo it was dungarees it was uh, (laughs) loose clothing yeah whistles gloves etc closer you could just dance or dance all night and and ravers dressed down as opposed to dressing up like like new romantics and that's one thing which i was somewhat in variance for me because i was very much a clubber in the old sense and i always still like to dress up for me going out you dressed up um, a lot of ravers would actually dress down and it made sense you know because if you're going to dance for like four hours solidly you know a big baggy t-shirt and a pair of jeans is all, all yeah. you really need type of thing one of the things that it might have sort of come to an end is that that culture was very, very inclusive. I mean, the whole point about the whole, whole rave culture was that it was supposed to be inclusive, love everybody. There were no none of these differences. Whereas the previous youth cultures, the whole point was to say, I'm this and I'm not you. And I think that really did change with, with the, the rave culture that came in. Again, sir, as a stunning point, you really see the effects of that now in that I listen to the music that my son listens to. He will listen to music from the 70s, from the 80s, and music now. And for him, it's just all the same. It's all the same. And there is no sense of, I shouldn't be listening to this because this is kind of uncool or this is a different type of music. And I think you're you're completely right. This is the first youth culture, which is pan. It's universal, really. It doesn't matter, right? And it's acted as somewhat of a sledgehammer. Electronic music with that ethos has acted as some of a sledgehammer in terms of flattening every everything out now. Yeah, my son's playlists mm-hmm. are just a mishmash of everything. It's just bizarre. And you know, those and there was always stuff. You know, when there was times when I just would not listen to heavy metal of any type because I didn't like heavy metal. I, you know, I was a goth, and you just wouldn't allow yourself to to listen to something that was outside what was you thought was cool. But that I really think has changed. They all listen to Rick Astley. 
it's really odd. <laughs> the the irony is is that at the start of the 1950s, or at least in England in the 1950s, teenagers become defined by not dressing like their parents. Mm. Now we've gone the whole gamut, and we've gone back to that pre-era where parents and teenagers fundamentally dress in the same way. Teenagers yeah. might dress a little bit more edgy. They might be a little bit more sexy, but they are fundamentally, they have the same wardrobe now. Yeah. And I think that's another one of the reasons why maybe the uh, the impetus has been taken out of um, youth culture. So there is the musical one, then there is the fashion element where yeah. fashion is almost like universal. And I always remark about this when I talk, when I think about my mom the way that she dresses. My mother dresses younger now, age 72, than she did 20 years ago, 30 yeah. years ago, definitely. Yeah. Women back then who were, my mom would have been what, in her 40s back then, didn't dress like teenagers. Women in their 40s now fundamentally dress kind of like teenagers, you know, or yeah. women in their 20s. There isn't that great big dividing line or the stark dividing line. Yes, there are differences, but there isn't a stark kind of dividing line. But the question is, though, why did all of these youth cultures come out of England? What do you reckon, Luke? Hmm, that's a very good question. Well, I mean, I think there is a point to say that a lot of it originate from America. Um, and I think... No, 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 sir. No, sir. No, sir. A lot of the music originated from America. And I think the fact that we speak the same language no, some, as Americans. Some. I would say it's 70-30 England. So if you step through it, all right, the Teddy Boys, their fashion and their music is, uh, their fashion is a pastiche of what we think Americans are dressing like. No question. Hmm. And they are dancing to american music by the end of the decade it is skiffle which is uniquely english but by the start no question mods they liked american r&b people like otis redding but yeah. it's a very english way of dressing that's nothing to do with america that's nothing to do with america at all mm -hmm. and then as mods really get into their pomp it's the rolling stones it's the who it's the Yardbirds, all of those mid mid sixties bands. They're all English, mm. every last one of them. Skinheads, they look to initially West Indian culture for the way that they dress and for their music. That's not America. Yeah, well, it is. It's the Americas. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, it's not, I'm being a bit it's not America. <laughs> uh, punks. When you think of a classic punk it's an english way of dressing yeah it's even on the postcards in london exactly it becomes Beefy. so synonymous and i should have i should have really said that in my uh, spiel shouldn't i punks are so english that they become as, as english as the royal family or as the, a red telephone box you know they're Indeed. on all the postcards and though america has had its own kind of punk scene we associate it over, over here with uh, the sex pistols and with the Stranglers, not so much with the Ramones. That, that was kind of something else. It's two things kind of almost happening in kind of parallel, but mm. that punk lick is definitely an English look. Two-tone Scar revival, nothing to do with America. New Romantics, nothing to do with America. Goth, nothing to do with America. With house music and with, with the Ravers, it starts off as being very American with Chicago and Detroit, but it's gay America, the music. Right. And then... A year in, it's all English. It's all English. And the American sound is actually seen as a little bit too soulful by then. Black Box is Ride on Time, which is an Italian house hit. But it's kind of classic in that it's the, the soulful American vibe, a big diva going, wow! <laughs> but this is very much a European musical sensibility. It's yeah. not soulful in the, in the kind of American way. But the big anomaly in all of this, this is the reason why I said the Rockers would be the last time in 20 years that British youth uh, dress like Americans or ape Americans or the American culture is at the heart of English youth culture is because the soul boy phenomena is all about American music. There's no two ways about that.
though the way that they dressed was still peculiarly English, you know. So I think it's a 70-30 thing. And I think the 30 (laughs) for America is is even slightly uh, inflating it. You know, it was quite interesting, I think, when we were talking about um, the fact that it's kind of come to an end now um, and there there aren't so many youth cultures coming out of England. But then it's something that I know absolutely nothing about, but the sort of anime youth culture in in Japan. Um, And I can imagine, Mm. you know, what you were saying about the fact that it was a rebellion against your parents. You really had to dress differently to your parents. It was, you know, I'm, I'm not you. And I imagine that sort of really sort of full on anime look from Japan has got some of that going on as well, mm. where, you know, they, they're definitely differentiating themselves from another de- generation that, you know, couldn't possibly dress like them. And so I suppose but that's, that's one of the ways they it, it's sort of carrying on in di- different countries where they are still rebelling against their parents and their parents aren't mm. yet wearing their kids' clothes. There is J-pop, there is K-pop. Mm. But the adherence of those genres of music in in England or even America don't dress a certain way. There are 12-year-old girls that are into K-pop. My mm. daughter was into, I can't remember if it was J or K-pop a, a few years back. But she didn't don a way of dressing to signify that. Yeah. You know, there was a slightly accented way that she dressed as a Canadian kid in full stop. Yeah. And there were the slightly more arty kids that dressed a bit like this, the slightly more jockish kids that dressed like that. But it's very much kind of on a spectrum. Um, but still for me, so what is it peculiarly about England that from the 50s to the early 90s, that literally every 18 months, if it wasn't a new youth culture, there's definitely a new way of dressing. Mm. And I think the obvious difference is, is that compared to America, we're, we're actually much more non-conformist, though Americans think that they're all about the rugged individual and stuff. And we also have this influx of immigrants into our cities from somewhere else, which just creates some level of pressure and tension and creativity. The fact that there are West Indian immigrants or in immigrants from the sub-Indian continent doesn't account for goths, though. It doesn't account for new romantics. But there is something about that juxtaposition of not always working class and lower middle class society butting up against each other. Because the other thing is it's really interesting when you go through these subcultures, they're either working class or at best lower middle class, Mm. you know. And, And I made the distinction between the punks and the goths. The punks were nearly always uh, working class, but the Goths were more middle class than them. Though the two, there's a massive overlap between the two in terms of the music they, they would have been listening to by, like, say, the, the early 1980s and stuff. There is a class component. There is a, an urban component. But it isn't all just that because the Soul Boys were suburban. You know? yeah. So I can't work it out. Yeah, But it's a peculiarly English phenomenon. And and we've exported it so throughout the world. As you said, Marilyn Manson is obviously a goth, mm. right? And um, that's a British way of, of dressing, and he's American. There's quite a lot of goth in America, though. You know, Lords of the New Church, Alien Sex Fiend. They're quite a sort of big goth influence coming out of... Yeah, <laughs> they're great. Ma- massively so, but they're, but they're aping this early 80s way of dressing and of being which does you know which is mary shelley's frankenstein is as much part of that scene as you know in its dna oh byron yes exactly byron (laughs) the goth god um, as susie and the banshees yeah but as i said it's just one of those things some i need somebody to point me in the direction of uh, an article where somebody's actually nailed it it's the reason why this yeah i just do want to say that I think the laws of the new church were half half English and American before anyone corrects me. I got Utrid wrong in the last one, so I can't go ahead without <laughs> correcting myself there. <laughs> Just to finish up on this before we go on to the social media roundup, the amazing thing is about this, I'm not anti British at all. You know, I'll wave the Union Jack if if needs be. But you can't delve into 
any of these subcultures and see they started in Scotland, Wales, or Northern Ireland. Mm. They just didn't, yeah. you know. And and really, when you boil it down, it's a handful of locations. It is uh, Birmingham comes up quite a bit, and we haven't even done heavy metal. And I left heavy metal out because there really is a dispute as to whether. It starts, well, it starts in Birmingham, but also there is a, a heavy rock movement in America. And then the mode of dress, you know, who, who takes ownership of that? So I left heavy metal completely out of this, but like you know, Birmingham comes <laughs> up in. I think David might have something to say because I think David was a bit of a metaler in his youth. Well, he still is. He hasn't stopped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But when, he, when, you, when you boil it down, um english youth cultures it's london and then the home counties for the soul boys then it's birmingham for for house music and for two-tone and for new romantics Um, yeah sheffield sheffield for new romantics as well it's not that many places but it's it's definitely not our Celtic cousins. <laughs> no. you know, it's it's all England, and uh, and uh, it's something which um, we should celebrate because um, it's a defined fashion, and it's actually put us on on the map to do with popular culture the whole world over. And on that note, of course, it's going to go into the cabinet. We should go on to uh, the social media roundup, and I think our Fiona has done yet again another sterling job. Over to you, Fiona. topic in hand was Ethelstan, king of the Anglo-Saxons and first king of the English, or so many modern historians regard him. But does he deserve to go into the groaning cabinet of Englishness? 67 voted for yes, there were three dunnos and two noes. Stephen Bowden began a very spirited and controversial comment with yes, he unified the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, so in that sense he made England, but the fact that he was subsequently largely forgotten has to be taken into account. And ended it with, just as he has been unfairly left out of our national foundation myth, he has to be left out of the cabinet. Sorry. He was countered by Matthew Constable, and their argument is worth looking at. Liz Williams said, well, I had never heard of him, but that doesn't mean he doesn't deserve to be in the cabinet. Alison Mary Hebben told us, he's dead common here in Kingston, primary school named after him, etc. And then went on to say, by the way, has there yet been a resounding no poll leading to non-inclusion in the cabinet? I can't think of one. Actually, nor can I, Alison. And by the way, there is an Athelstan school near Sheffield as well. Paul Godden, who's from Faversham in East Kent, I know it well, Paul, and lives right on Watling Street, showed us a picture of Athelstan Road right there in Faversham and told us that nearby are also Canute Road, Egbert Road, Ethelbert Road, Harold Court and Ethelred Court. A stone's throw away are Roman Road, Britain Road, Saxon Road and Norman Road. But no Stephen Road, though, even though the last of the Norman kings is buried in the town. Paul, I concur. When I went to school in East Kent, there was plenty of evidence of Athelstans, with at least two Athelstan streets that I know of, one in Deal and one in Canterbury. Penny Christopher said the podcast made a strong case for Athelstan being English, but I remain unconvinced. All hail King William. And we heard from David Crowther, which was lovely, who said, quote, Well, I thought that was a smashing episode. Thank you for part of the process of rehabilitating Athelstan. Catherine Dawn Ruiz said lovely show and discussion, but not in the cabinet, I think. Nice to hear about his contributions. Maybe he can go on a low shelf, in rotation with the Rolling Stones. Beatles equals cabinet, Stones equals low shelf. If you agree or disagree with Catherine, why not get on to the Facebook page and join in the bun fights? There's other fun on the page, including a link to football chants, 
if you miss sitting in a stadium full of drunk people. And just for a lark, I posted a link to Saxon names and Stephen Bowden posted a better one. And many of us had fun choosing a Saxon name. So from Elfgifu, although the Welsh woman in me wants to pronounce it Elfgivy, join in the bun fight and stay safe until we meet again. Fiona, thank you for that. As always, tip-top and Bristol fashion. You know what I love about Fiona? Her voice. Oh, God, yes. So what good. a delivery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she she knows what she's doing. She's like yeah. the, the rabbit on the caramel uh, cream and yeah. on the, those caramel chocolate ads. It's, yeah. She's so good, so good. You're wasted on this podcast, Fiona. Why don't you go onto our Facebook page, uh, type in the things that made England, and maybe you can regale us with your stories of you being a, a member of any of the, uh, the youth cultures which we mentioned on this week's episode, or even post a picture of you as a punk or as, as a skinhead yeah. or as a mod or a rocker. That, that'd be pretty good. Let, let's be a lot see of how, fun. <laughs> how outlandish you were in your youth. So, yeah, let, let's do that. And, of course, this is going to make the cabinet. Because if it doesn't, I'm flouncing off, Luke. I'm, I'm really, I'm going to flounce with a man. <laughs> and you won't see me for dust on this podcast. <laughs> Don't go. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, but thank you for bearing with us on, on this week's episode. It's, it's a subject which is really close to my heart, being a, an, an urban brummy. We'll see you. Oh, oh, just before we go, don't forget to write us a review. On, on Apple iTunes, and if you if you can't get onto onto Apple iTunes, uh, post us a review on a podcatcher of your choice, whatever podcatcher you use. Write us a review because it's a great way of us getting more listeners, new listeners to the show. Take care, bye bye.